You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, I keep saying this every week, um, hopefully to the point of redundancy, where by the end of the semester you're like, yeah, I get it. Uh, but revelation, is the point of it is to reveal. Right? It's not to conceal, it's not to hide anything, it's to reveal. Uh, it's to help us to see Jesus. Revelation was written by John to particular people, to the seven churches in Asia Minor that were undergoing some early persecution, but it was about to get really ramped up and become a lot worse Uh, And he wrote it to them uh, because God showed him these visions to give to the people so that they could endure, so that they could hold on and and persevere in faith through suffering, through difficulty, through boredom, through all the kinds of different emotions that we go through and experiences we go through. And if it did that for them, uh, I think it can do it for us as well. So as we go through the series on Revelation, what we're trying to do every week is to see Jesus because that's what the book tells us it's about. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Last week, uh, we looked at Revelation 4 and 5 uh, to see this vision of God on his throne, kind of at the center of everything. Uh, And that's really important for us to keep in mind this week, because this week we start getting into some like weird stuff, some really heavy stuff. And it's really important for us to keep in mind that at the center of everything, there's a throne and it is not empty. Right? And that uh, along with God on the throne with the Father is the Lamb who is slain for us. And so we know that our God is for us and good and kind and loving and self-sacrificing. And he's the one who has ordained everything else that we're going to read in Revelation. Uh, I'm going to read the first uh, little bit of Revelation chapter 6, and then we'll spend some time talking about it. John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over, all, uh, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Let's pray, and then we'll try and talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, 
who we are and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. Uh, as we tackle this difficult passage tonight, um, all these images and just kind of the, the heavy section of scripture, uh, I pray that you would send your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news that you have for us in the gospel. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so you may have heard about them. Uh, you may know where they're from, but here we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? That like thing that ushers in the end time. Um, here's what we have, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, one at a time we go through them, and in verse 1 and 2 we get a white horse, right? It comes out riding, and its rider has a bow and a crown, and he's conquering and to conquer, right? Like this is the picture of a king going to war, and so what we see, the, the first horse bringing to the earth is war. The second horse is red, the color of blood, which is probably what it's signifying, but it comes to take peace from the earth. Maybe not necessarily war, but conflict, strife, violence from people to one another. The third horse, verses 5 and 6, is black. Its rider is death, and it brings uh, a pair of scales, we're like, what do we do with that? Well, when we see scales, we think of justice, right? Lady Justice standing outside the Supreme Court building with these scales in her hands, right? To balance, does your good outweigh your bad? Which is a terrible definition of justice, but that's where we are. Um, they saw scales in the first century world, and they thought commerce, right? They thought the supermarket. Uh, they thought Harris Teeter, Walmart, Ingalls, Food Lion, Aldi, wherever you shop. Right? Because what you would do is if you would come up in the marketplace to a big pile of wheat and somebody would have some scales, which is a stick with two bowls on it with a, a hoop in the middle, you could hang it, you could hold it, and you put wheat in one side and you put something, a known weight on the other side, and when they balanced, you knew how much wheat you had. Right? And so these scales were determine, determining prices. And the prices here, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, do not harm the oil and the wine. Um, a quart of wheat is about what uh, a laborer would eat in a day. Right? That was enough to keep you fed. It was enough to keep you going. Uh, you could do barley instead, but it wasn't quite as nutritious. It wasn't quite as tasty. Uh, so you could get three rations for the same price. But a quart of wheat or a quart of barley was as much food as a man needed for a day. And a denarius was as much money as a laborer would make in a day. And so this picture here is one kind of of, of scarcity, right? Of, of, I mean, we're familiar with it now, high inflation, right? Stuff just costs a lot. Um, because if you need to work all day just to feed yourself, what about your tools? What about your family? What about your home? What about all of the other things that we kind of need money for? Right, so there's this picture of scarcity, of, of inflation, of economic difficulty, but it's not for everybody. Right? Do not harm the oil and the wine. Those, like they are today, were luxuries. Right? The, the common folk didn't enjoy oil and wine. That was reserved for the wealthy, for the influential. And it's not harmed. Right? So not, just do we ha not only do we have economic difficulty, we've got kind of disparity between the rich and the poor coming with this third horse. And the fourth horse, uh, it says it's a pale horse. Uh, several of the commentators that I read said it's kind of like this sickly green color, um, like that Disney green where you know somebody's bad, whether it's Ursula or Scar or Shrek or something like that. Like, it's that kind of just 
color of death, right? Shrek is really stinky. He's an ogre. Um, and it, it comes, what comes with him is death, right? A fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the way that we often think about reading the book of Revelation is that we're kind of going in order. But the way I'm suggesting that we're reading Revelation is that John is seeing these visions, these pictures, and they're all looking at the same series of events. And so as we look at human history, it's not like we should try and look and see. It's like, okay, when was the era of the white horse? When was the era where mankind struggled with war? And then when that ends, we should expect an era of relative peace, like nationally, but maybe violence between individuals. And then after that, a, a period of peace primarily, but economic difficulty. And of course, that's not the case. Right? If you look at the scope of human history, especially since Christ has come, you see all four of these horses all of the time. Right? Human history has been marked by war. Even today, right? the conflict that still goes on in the Ukraine, human history is marked by war. Human history is marked by violence and conflict. It could be as simple as like a conflict between you and your roommate, uh, or, or it could be as deep and systemic as like pervasive violence in a city or a neighborhood. Human history is one of disparity, right? Of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And human history is one of death, right? We all die, but even in that, there are those who die quote, before their time, right? From, from things like the sword, right? Some die in war or in violence. From famine, from lack of basic resources, right? Nurture, food, water, shelter. Some from pestilence, right? Plague, sickness that goes on in the world. Everybody remembers COVID-19, right? Like, that's a plague. It still goes on today. And some just from accidents, right? Things that aren't inherently sinful, but are just a result of living in a broken world, right? That we have beasts in here um, because it could be dangerous to travel because there were wild animals, but like natural disasters or things like a car wreck where nobody is, is, is generally like specifically to blame. It's just something that happens in a fallen and broken world. So we've got these four horsemen who bring these terrible things, right? War, violence, disparity, um, death itself. And they come as the seals are being opened by Jesus. And that should make us scratch our heads, right? Because if we look out at the scope of human history and we see that Jesus is enacting the plan of God, right? He's opening the, the scroll, he's breaking the seals, and things are getting worse. How do we make sense of that? How do we wrestle with the fact that it's the Lamb himself who has all the authority and all the power and wisdom who is breaking these seals, and this is what's resulting? Um, why do things get worse before they get better? I'm stealing this illustration from uh, another RUF campus minister, Brian Sorgenfry, who was at Old Miss for a long time. Uh, he and I are both big Lord of the Ring nerds, and so when I heard him give this, it really resonated with me. Uh, if you've read The Hobbit, you know that over the course of the events of The Hobbit, or seen the movies, um, the book's better, um, Bilbo finds a ring in a cave, and it helps him to turn invisible, right? And he goes on all these adventures and helps out the dwarves get the treasure back from the dragon, smog or smaug, you can have that debate later. Um, but he finds this ring, and it's this, like, 
concentration of evil in the world. And Bilbo has it for like 70 years. And then you start reading The Lord of the Rings and you realize that Frodo is bequeathed the ring and he has it for like 10 or 15 years or something like that. And everybody's kind of fine, right? Like there's no big issue that comes because Bilbo or Frodo has the ring. But as soon as the decision is made that we need to get this thing to the uh, Mount Doom to destroy it, right? We need to actually deal with evil. That's when the forces of evil rise up and start to terrorize and start to attack and start to come out against the forces of good. In the story of the Bible, uh, this world that we live in is called the domain of Satan, right? It's subject to what Paul calls the prince of the power of the air, If you notice in this passage, um, John distinguishes between those who dwell on the earth and in other places, those who dwell in heaven, right? John, looking at these visions, sees God's people as those who dwell in heaven and everyone else as those who dwell on the earth, right? And those who dwell on the earth, this earth is broken and fallen. If you go back and you read the first chapters of Genesis 1 through 3, you see that it's not just sin that affects our relationship with one another and our relationship with God, but sin breaks the earth itself. So much so that Paul says in Romans that creation itself cries out for Christ to come again, for the revealing of the sons of God, right? Like these natural disasters, this brokenness, this decay, right? Kudzu itself Right? These are all effects of the fall and the brokenness that the world experiences. And so what happens when, when Jesus comes and he starts enacting the plan of God to deal with the brokenness of the world, the world itself rises up and says, no, because it's against God. Right? And so we see that as Jesus is coming to make all things new, evil itself, right? Satan, sin, the devil, like whatever it is, rises up and says, we're going to make things bad for as long as we can, as bad as we can, and continue to pursue war and violence and disparity and death. That's why things get worse before they get better. It's not a full explanation of the problem of evil and suffering in the world, but it's an explanation. And I want you to know, too, that if you struggle with that question, like, why is there suffering if our God is good and if he's on the throne? Right? Why is there pain? Why did that thing happen to me or to my family or to my friend? Right? You're not the only one that asks that question. Look at seal number five, starting in verse nine. When, when he, the lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. We get in Revelation 4 through 7, which is all kind of this one encompassing vision, several different pictures of what the people of God look like. We saw last week that they look like the 24 elders seated on on thrones around the throne, And we see here a picture of them as suffering and struggling and defeated under the altar, crying out, O Lord, how long? How long before you come and you make all things new? How long before you come and fix what is broken in the world? And they're told, they're answered, just a little longer. 
And we say, why? Like, why a little longer? You're powerful, you're strong, you're God. Like, why not deal with it now? And the answer that he gives in verse 11, they're given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Basically, Jesus tells them, like, wait until the rest of you are here. Right? All of my people aren't in yet. Right? They haven't all come to me. Maybe some of them haven't even been born yet. And so Jesus' delays in dealing with the suffering of the world and evil in the world is not because he doesn't see it and not because he doesn't care. It's because once he deals with it, history's done. Right? Like that's the end of the story. And he says, my people aren't all home yet. And so we're waiting a little bit longer. And then in Revelation, it's just the next verse, right? For us, it's been like 2,000 years, and who knows how much longer it will be. But when, when seal number six opens, this is what we read in Revelation chapter six. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Uh, this is pretty intense, right? The sky first turns black and then goes away, right? The moon turns to blood. There's earthquakes and upheaval, and everybody is fleeing into caves and calling to the mountains, like, fall on us, crush us, hide us. We can't bear the sight of the Lamb. This is really, really similar to what Jesus says to look for, uh, for the signs of the end, uh, end of the times. Uh, if you look at Matthew, I think it's 24, 25, something in that neighborhood. But he also talks about it in Mark and Luke. Um, the description that's given here is very similar to what Jesus says will happen when he comes again. Right? This is the second coming, when Jesus returns to make all things new. And what you see is that those who are outside of the church, those who are not with Christ, flee from him. And that kind of leaves us with a question. Right? We've broken all six seals. We've seen the scope of human history. It's marked by war and suffering and violence and economic disparity and death. The saints under the altar, just like you and I, cry out, how long? The earth itself is going to melt away. And it kind of asks the question like, what should we expect in this kind of age? Right? How much of this suffering comes at us? Are we, because of our faith, shielded from this? Are we, because of our faith, like, do we bear the worst of this? What happens to the church in the midst of all these seals being broken, in the midst of human history unraveling? Well, in chapter 7, we get the answer to this question. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, um, I've said that Revelation is like a bunch of different camera angles on the same events. Uh, Revelation 6 and 7 is like, it, it's looking at the same camera angle, but John hits the rewind button, okay? Because in, in chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. 
After this, I saw, so when he says after this, this is an interruption. Um, when he says after this, he's not necessarily saying the next thing that happens in human history is blank. He's saying the next thing I saw is blank. But what he says he saw next is four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So John sees this vision of four angels standing at the four corners of the world, um, holding back the winds, and he hears a voice that says, don't let anything happen to the, to the earth until we've sealed the people of God. Okay? At the end of chapter 6, the earth is gone. So chapter 7 can't like chronologically follow chapter 6, right? It has to be a rewind, coming back to the beginning and saying, okay, before these horsemen are unleashed... What happens to the people of God? Then in verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, on and on and on. Uh, We talked last week about numbers and how numbers are a big deal in Revelation. They can signify things. Uh, And we said that 12 is the, the number of the fullness of God's people. Right, 12 is the number of the church, and it, it kind of signifies that all of God's people are included. And last week we saw 24 elders, right? 12 plus 12. Here we have 144,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. And in Revelation, 1,000 is just a really big number, right? It's, it's not a literal number of only 144,000 people will be in heaven. This is signifying that it's the fullness of the people of God, and there's a lot of them. We know there's a lot of them because after listing all the different tribes that there are 12,000 from, John says this in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb." So John hears that there are 144,000, and then he turns and he sees the people of God. It's the same people, right? This, this multitude that he sees and the 144,000. Just like last week, the, the lion of Judah, he heard the lion has conquered, and he turned and he saw a lamb. This week he hears the 144,000, and he turns and he sees this great multitude. It's more than he could hope to count. He's just blown away by the number of people who are there. And I think for us, this is really helpful and instructive because we can kind of start to think that our tribe, our people, our denomination, our campus ministry are the only people that really get it, right? Like we're, we're the ones who get it and we're the ones who are going to end up in the good place and, and others, I don't know, it's kind of a flip of the coin. Right? But that's not what John is pointing to here. He's, he's pointing to like a, a group of number that he's not even going to try to count. Right? Uh, our church is in the process of buying the building that we're worshiping in from another congregation, another denomination. Uh, and one of this denomination's tenets is that they are the only true church. 
And so for them, this like transaction of the building is simply a business transaction. And it's been really, honestly, kind of frustrating to work with them because there's no grace. There's no, like, let's help another church out because they don't think we're another church. So anytime this topic kind of comes up, there's the question of, like, so what do we do about, like, denominations? What do we do about the fact that, like, Christians don't agree on all of these topics? Who's right? Well, I, I think that denominations aren't bad, right? Because we're, we're thinking through questions, we're trying to answer things biblically. But when we, when we lean towards denominationalism, that's bad, right? When we say our, we are right and everybody else is totally wrong, right? When there's no humility about our answers, when there's no, no grace towards those who, who disagree on things like, should you baptize babies or should you wait until they're adults, right? Like other kind of questions, should you sing hymns or should you sing praise choruses? Right? All those different things that are like tertiary at best, that divide Christians. John says they all fade away because he looks and he sees this vast multitude that no one could number. So should you love your church? Should you love your denomination? Absolutely. Right? And if you think there's a better church out there, go there. Right? I work for RUF because I think it's the best. Right? But that doesn't mean I think it's the only Right? There are other good campus ministries on campus, and if you think one is better, go there. Right? But don't look down on those who have chosen something else, because John says on the last day, when he, when he looks at the people of God, he can't even count them. It's so much bigger than our community, our group, our tribe. So he looks and he sees this vast number of people. He looks and he sees this multi-ethnic group of people. Right? People... Uh, People there from every people and language and tribe uh, and other places. He adds tongue, right? Different languages. Um, which for us, it's not like, yeah, that's cool, right? But, but our world increasingly is becoming more and more multi-ethnic. It's not uncommon to see people who don't look like us. But in John's day and the people that he was writing to, like think about John as, as he's writing this, as he's seeing this vision, Right, John grew up and lived his whole life in kind of a pretty small radius. Right? He, he spent a lot of time in Israel. He's, he's exiled on this island of Patmos in the Mediterranean. He just, like his life, he didn't travel very much. And people in general didn't travel much in that day. And so John, when he's seeing this vision, is seeing Chinese people, right? And Mayans, and Incans, and Native Americans, and like people that he didn't know existed. Right? Like, even if you don't, like, really know people well who are, like, from India or from China or from Canada or from wherever, like, you kind of know that they're out there, right? And when you see them, you're like, oh, like, cool. John, like, would have had no idea that there were people who lived in India, and there they are, this great multitude. And I think for us, too, I think that shows, like, how unique Christianity is when you consider all the other religions of the world. Right? Because all the other religions, especially the major ones, are, are pretty mono-ethnic, if that's a word. Right? Like, think about Islam. It started in the Muslim world. It's still centered in the, in the Muslim world. And even though there are mosques all over the place, most of the practitioners are from the Middle East. Right? You think about Hinduism. It started in India. It's still centered in India. And even though there are Hindu temples all over the place, most of the practitioners are Indian. Same thing with Buddhism in the Middle East, or not Middle East, uh, Asia, East Asia. Judaism, 
with Israel, right? And, and still most practitioners are ethnically Jewish. But the church started in Jerusalem, and then it kind of went up to like Southern Europe and the Roman Empire, and then down to Africa, and then back to Europe, and then to America, and then to South America, and now like Asia, Africa, have crazy number of Christians, right? You can't pin the church down, and you can't tie it to a location and a people. It's this vision of people from all over the place, people from every tribe and people and language worshiping God. John sees this vision, and it's vast, and it's multi-ethnic, and it's pure. They're all wearing white robes, covered in purity. And how does this happen? We'll look down at verse 13. One of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John says to him, I don't know, but you probably do. He says, sir, you know, which is a good answer. If your professor asks you a question, you don't know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It always goes back to Jesus, right? Back to the altar, back to the lamb. He's the one who has called us. He's the one who's made us a people. He's the one protecting us. He's the one who has washed us cleansing us of our sin and our guilt and our shame. And this whole chapter, this whole description of the people of God, the, the 144,000 and the vast multitude, are described in verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, looking at one another, we don't have literal marks on our foreheads, right? We don't have literal seals, but we talked last week about seals, right? They protect. They say, this is mine. This is genuine. This is from me. And what happens before the trumpets start to sound is that God seals his people. He says, these are mine. And that's never going to change. These are mine. They are protected, These are mine. They will endure until the last day. This is what Jesus has done for us, his people, right? He's called us together. He's called us to himself, and he has sealed us. And he has said, you will make it because I hold you. And he's not done, right? There's more to come that our God and our Lord and our Lamb will do for us. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. Or listen to it. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what's coming for those who are in Christ, right? He says, he will shelter you with his presence. Uh, have you ever walked into a class on the first day of class and like looked around and been like, where are my people, right? Do I know anybody in this class? And you make that pass and you look around and it's like, oh, there's nobody. And then you look up and you see like a really good friend like waving at you and pointing to like the seat beside you. Right? It doesn't have to be a class. It could be like some extracurricular thing you have to go to or like an RUF event where you're like, I guess I'll go, but I didn't talk to my friends. And you wonder, like, are my people here? And you show up and there they are and they're welcoming you. And just the relief that you feel 
at seeing somebody you know who's coming and who's waving you towards them and saying, welcome, come, like sit with me. It's that feeling forever, right? He will shelter you with his presence. No more hunger or thirst. Not just physical hunger or thirst, but, but any of those longings that we feel, right? We will be satisfied. We will be full forever. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more sorrow, no more grief, no more longing for things to be as they were meant to be, because they finally will be as they were meant to be. That's what awaits those who are sealed by God, who are washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. So what about until that day? What about until that comes to pass, where the Lamb himself shepherds us? What are we as believers to expect? Well, it's interesting that in Revelation 6, there's no distinction in the four horsemen given between the people of God and those who are against him. There's no distinction given between those who dwell in heaven and those who dwell on the earth. I think we can expect that in this life we will know trouble, right? Uh, It says in the passage here uh, in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. There's all kinds of wacky theories about there about what the tribulation is, right? Like this either three and a half or seven year period after the rapture, but before Jesus comes back again, like in that weird thing. I don't believe in a rapture, by the way. We'll get there. Um, but I, what he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And I think that what John says about himself in Revelation 1.9 is really instructive. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Right? John says he's part of the tribulation. All of the saints of God are sealed and are coming out of the tribulation. I think the great tribulation is just life. Right? And, and this is an honesty from God, that life can be difficult and it can be full of suffering. And yet, what we expect as believers is that we remember that we're sealed, that we will endure, that we will be carried through, As Paul says in Romans 8, I think this is a great place for us to end tonight. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. Not even the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our God has sealed us. Our lamb was slain for us, and we don't have to run to the hills to hide. We get to run to the altar to hide and dip our robes in the blood of the lamb and be washed clean. And because he has conquered and he has sealed us, we will as well. Let's pray. Father, we confess that this topic of suffering and struggle and death and economic disparity and just hurt in the world is not an easy one. We all come at it with different experiences of hurt and difficulty and and different questions, uh, legitimate questions that arise from it. I pray, Father, that that what we've seen from Revelation tonight uh, helps us to at least start to make sense of it, to know that you're not blind to it, that it's enduring not because you're uninterested in us or you're not paying attention or you're impotent, because you're waiting for the full number of your people. Father, I pray that that day would come quickly, that the full number would be gathered in and we would know that place where we are sheltered by your presence, where we hunger and thirst no more, where you wipe every tear from our eye and make all things new. 
hasten that day, Lord, and until then, help us to endure. Help us to stand and remember that we are sealed by you. We're yours. We're protected. And help us to shelter, not in ourselves, not in the hills, not to run from your presence, but to run to the altar and wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.